Hey, what's up, Amplivoice community? It's great to be back. Uh, today we have another guest. It's Scott Young. Sorry for my little delay here on the episode itself. Um, maybe a short word about Scott. So Scott just published his book, Ultra Learning, which is all about how you can learn skills super quickly. Um, it all more or less comes from his execution on doing different challenges of doing things in a time span where probably people would go probably crazy if you do like certain things in those certain time frames. For example, he decided to try to learn an MIT four-year undergraduate computer science curriculum in 12 months without actually joining any classes. So he kind of like looked for an opportunity to learn computer science way faster than the usual students uh, student does it and the MIT is definitely not known for an easy university so that also comes along with it and he has done different challenges on for example he uh, he did a year without English speaking he did 30 days of portray drawing challenges where he more or less tried to go into art and to portray arts and uh, improved himself every single day by ultra learning and he has come up with different methods and strategies on how to actually do it and we dive deeper into that into the in the interview itself we also cover a very specific topic especially for all the entrepreneurs out here which i know are in the community of how to actually learn coding super quickly by adapting the the ultra learning methodologies and methods and i think that's super interesting for all the business focused entrepreneurs on how to potentially bring ultra learning into coding to understand product and technology a little better so that's what we have talked about i hope you enjoy it let us know if you're listening to it on the socials twitter linkedin facebook instagram wherever you are uh, online and we would love to hear from you and uh, have a good one and enjoy the episode Welcome back in the Feed Your Brain podcast. My name is Max, and I'm happy to have another guest today in the show. Uh, his name is Scott Young, for uh, the quarter of the person that doesn't know him, probably through his books and through his more or less blog that's quite famous. Um, he is about to publish a new book, which is called Ultra Learning, um, which is super interesting to me because uh, it more or less covers how you can learn difficult things in less time, which is definitely something that is super, super interesting for entrepreneurs. So we have a lot to cover, and I'm grateful to have you on the show, Scott. Welcome to the Feed Your Brain podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great to be here. Likewise, it's great to have you on the show. I mean, you have been um, in, in, in definitely have some, some, definitely had some coverage on the process of, of your book, of course, but I think it's great to like, take a different approach and also give value to the entrepreneur community who is super interesting mm -hmm. to learn things quicker. Uh, so I think we have uh, lots of topics that we can discuss here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I'm excited. Maybe generally to to give a sense of ultra learning, um, mm -hmm. can you maybe describe a little bit of where you come from, how this whole topic arose, and also what's like coming for you now in the process? Yeah, so ultra learning is kind of, really it's one of those words that I kind of came up with to describe something you see in the world and you don't see another word describing it. And basically what I wanted to focus on was people who took on what I call self-directed learning projects. So people who just really have their own project to get good at something as opposed to, you know, we often think about learning as going through school or going through university or waiting years to get a degree. And I wanted to focus on people who seem to have taken unconventional ways to get good at skills. And then the other aspect that I wanted to focus on was people who had a certain intensity 
and passion for doing things as effectively as possible. So we all know the person who just kind of dabbles and they get a little bit better over like a decade maybe, but they're not super serious about it. I wanted to study these people because I felt like if we can understand how someone is able to do you know, some pretty impressive feats, and there's a number of people we can talk about who I document on my book who have done some pretty impressive things, and they do it through this sort of process of really refining how do you get better at things. So really understanding how the process of learning works and then trying to optimize it so that you can, yeah, get the best results that you want. Lovely. Um, I, I, I can uh, sense that you definitely have a good definition for what you do. It's it's lovely because I think it's quite um, good to understand it in more in-depth. Uh, maybe before we go into the like potential ideas of ultra learning, I, mm -hmm. I had a question in mind that maybe it's also something that you haven't had been answered or haven't you had been requested before, which is um, I was quite interested and intrigued before we started the interview about like when when technology wasn't there and people didn't have access to learning things quite quickly through Google and different like tools that were given to us through technology, maybe if you look back a little bit to the time where pyramids were built or where things <laughs> needed to be learned in a in yeah. a time frame that was also uh, maybe quick because like certain like uh, people wanted it quickly but things also needed to be learned by the people itself. How has learning been changed over the last thousands, two thousand years when we think about technological advances that have actually been appearing in the last 50 to 100 years? Like what's your what's your observation from from that kind of view? Yeah, well, the capacity to learn now really has never been better. So if you want to get good at some skill, the ability to do so right now in this moment of time has just never been as easy as it is. And so I think a lot of our assumptions about how you have to learn new skills, how you have to get better at things, are kind of rooted in older conceptions where if you, you know, if you didn't go to this particular school or you didn't study under this particular master, it'd just be impossible to learn that skill. There just wouldn't be any way of doing it. And so obviously if we're talking about like the whole span of human history, there's been a lot of inventions that have made learning more you know, accessible. The invention of writing certainly has is, is been one that has uh, benefited people greatly. If you just have to, if you can only learn things when someone tells it to you directly, it's going to certainly be a handicap for learning. But even now, I think we're entering a new era because, as you just mentioned, things like Google, things like, uh, you know, courses being put online, th these, these are all things that are fairly recently uh, innovated so that you know, if you were to even look back 20, 30 years ago, it would be a real struggle for someone to acquire a lot of the skills that right now, you know, there's tons of free resources for that if you wanted to learn them. Interesting. So you kind of see that especially, I think what you also mentioned is that when we look at the former like way of learning, when we think about mm -hmm. the past, people are still thinking the same way, especially if you think about school, people are still learning in more or less traditional ways and children are learning more or less in traditional ways. What do you think, like, what needs to happen now if we adapt the form of ultra learning? How can we adapt that to more or less the education system to also help children and people that are willing to learn in very early ages um, to learn faster and more, in, more effectively? Well, I think there's lots of things that we can be doing to teach more effectively and to run schools better and all of those things. 
But my purpose in writing this book and, and for bringing up this concept was that I think that a lot of people have a fairly narrow view. You know, you talk about learning and first first thought people comes to people's mind is classroom learning or something that you learned in school maybe. And sometimes that's not even the best experience, so you have some negative feelings about that. And so I think part of the problem is that we just, we tend to focus on learning as it takes place in school. We don't focus on how do people learn things outside of it. And I think if you look at the scope of the things that people experience, the things that people learn, most of it actually doesn't happen in school. Most of the things that we learn that really matter to us, the skills that we actually get good at, they were not learned in a classroom, they were learned outside of the classroom. And so I think that that's the more typical way that we think about learning, that we actually end up doing learning in practice. And so for me, writing this book, it was to try to focus on that sort of neglected half, to focus on, you know, you're working a job, you want to get better at your job, how do you do it? If you are, you know, at home, you want to learn to cook, how do you do it? If you are trying to learn a new language, programming, some skill, how do you do it? And I think that kind of mindset that, well, I should go to a classroom and I should go to this particular teacher, I should go to this particular book. I think that that can sometimes hold people back because when those things don't work very well, which often happens, then people get just in their head that, you know, they can't get better at that. Whereas I think that if you really understand how learning works, you see that not only are you doing it all the time, but this is some, this is a process that impacts every aspect of your life. That is interesting. So I, I, as you mentioned, right, it's it's coming through all ages, um, no matter who it is. Lifelong learning is not just a word anymore. It's more or less uh, a culture uh, that, that needs to be defined and needs to be thought through in a more dense way. To maybe also cover the part of ultra learning, I, I remember when uh, Nia Eyal connected us, um, so also saying hi to him and thank you mm -hmm. for, for the yeah. introduction. He mentioned that you actually... Um, you try to do an MIT computer science course, which usually lasts four years, and you did it in, I think, 12 months, and the same happening for learning a language. You try to learn four languages within one year, which is spectacular. Um, so I would love to dig a little bit deeper here on how you actually yeah. approached it with the technique of ultra-learning, because I think that's a good first step into the into the topic. Yeah, so maybe it probably makes a bit more sense right now to just step back a bit and talk about how kind of coming across this ultra learning idea, how, you know, how did I get here? How did I, how am I writing this book? And so for me, this mm -hmm. actually all started not because I, you know, did something really impressive and then just decided, okay, now, now, I'm, now I'm an ultra learner, but rather it was meeting someone else and seeing someone else's example of doing something really impressive that kind of started me thinking along these lines. And so for me, this actually happened when I was in university. I went on a student exchange to France for a year. And I was living in France, and one of my uh, goals of being in there for this year is that I wanted to come back speaking French. And it was actually really difficult. I found that, you know, my classes were in English. Most of the people around me spoke to me in English all the time. And it was really difficult to learn the language. And so I was kind of complaining about this to a friend from back home. And he said to me, well, have you heard of Benny Lewis? And I said, no, I, who's, ben, who's Benny Lewis? And Benny Lewis has a website called Fluent in Three Months, uh, quite, <laughs> quite modestly titled. And it is about <laughs> him taking, it was, you know, nowadays he, he doesn't do as many of these challenges, but in the early days he did these challenges where he would go to a new country for three months and try to learn as much as possible, getting as close to fluence as he can in just three months. And so this really struck me because 
if you've ever tried to learn a language before, chances are you've spent more than three months and it's difficult. And for me, I was living in the country. So it wasn't even like I was just, you know, eh, I've got like a half hour class a week or something like that. No, I was actually in France trying to learn and I'd been there for more than three months and I didn't feel like I was anything close to fluent. And mm -hmm. so I was very curious because, you know, not only a little skeptical, but also curious of like, how is he doing this or what is he doing differently than I'm doing? And so I got a chance to meet him. And the thing that struck me wasn't so much, oh, he has some trick. Like, it's not that it all just boils down to, oh, well, there's this like trick. And if you just apply this one trick, uh, you can learn a language really quickly. Rather, it was whole, his whole philosophy towards learning generally was just different from how I was approaching the problem. So whereas mm -hmm. I was at home and I'm kind of reviewing my books at home and just waiting for the moment when I might be able to speak with people and, and really be comfortable doing that, from he was from the very first day, just going out, getting a phrase work, starting to talk to people. And so from mm -hmm. that, he was amassing a lot more practice. And because he was a lot amassing a lot more practice, he was getting closer to fluency much faster than I was using my approach, even though I was trying really hard. And so for me, this was sort of, well, first of all, it kind of showed me that, you know, the way that we often think about learning languages, that there's a big difference between the maximally effective approach and how people mo usually approach it. But mm -hmm. it also got me thinking about just this sort of thinking outside the education system way of approaching learning skills. See, Benny Lewis wasn't going and attending classes for five years and then going out and trying to speak to people. He was sort of creating his own path. And it turned out that that was faster to do that as well. And so for me, I, I remember experiencing that and having that kind of idea of, you know, not only here's someone who's doing this really interesting project and it's got this sort of ambitious deadline and he's, you know, really working hard at it, but also the fact that he was doing this as a kind of blogging project. So he was taking on these challenges and then writing about it while he was doing it. And I was also blogging at the time. So that's something that really appealed to me because I thought, you know, this is just great. I just find this so interesting to follow this. <laughs> and so a couple of years later, I decided to do my first project, which you briefly mentioned uh, before, which I called the MIT challenge. And this was uh, completely different, not really related to languages. But I basically, when I graduated from university, I had spent my whole time studying business in business school. And I kind of felt like I wish I'd studied something different. Different. I don't know if you've ever experienced that when you've, you know, you studied yeah, something, got, you spent a lot of time studying, the and then you're like, ah, you know, maybe I should have majored in something else. And so right. I had this experience. That's why a lot of people learn was, coding in the process, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I had this experience and I felt like what I really wanted to have studied was computer science because I now was like working online. I was doing a lot of things that involved the internet, technology, software. And it kind of felt like, ah, I should have studied that instead of, you know, HR and organizational theory and like <laughs> weird charts with quadrants and things like that. And so <laughs> I was interested in learning that, but I didn't really want to go back to school. And so this kind of idea of Benny Lewis taking on these, what I'll call now ultra learning projects, uh, really sort of kind of had this like, well, maybe, maybe there's something there. And around that time, I was uh, digging around and MIT actually posts uh, a lot of their coursework online for free that anyone can access. So this is MIT's open courseware. And so I remember mm -hmm. I was taking one of the classes, like I was going on there and I was watching the lecture videos and I was really impressed by it. And it just kind of, I don't know where the idea came exactly, but I just had this feeling of like, has anyone ever tried to 
do something like a degree before? Like, has anyone tried to, you know, learn an MIT sort of computer science degree, but just using the free stuff that they provide, not, not actually going to MIT, not actually doing all of that, that process. And mm -hmm. so um, this, yeah, this idea for this project was obviously if you're not actually going to MIT, you're not going to get the full MIT experience. And so I tried to just really focus it on, could I learn the content enough to pass the final exams? And later I added the programming projects. But with this kind of stripped down idea, it was actually possible to get pretty close to what MIT would teach in their undergraduate curriculum, just piecing together with these free resources. And so, yeah, I took on this project I called the MIT Challenge, and I started in uh, September of 2011, and I did um, the, I passed the final class in, um, sorry, I started in October 2011, and I passed the final class in September of 2012, so it was just under one year. Crazy. Uh, congrats on on that side. Actually, so you so you learned coding probably pretty quickly, or the science behind com, uh, computer programming, uh, which is yeah, definitely one so, yeah, one big advantage. And, <laughs> yeah, well, it was it really was, and like I spent I did the normal you know normal time spent in university before, and I felt like I learned more in that one year of doing that intense project than I did in my entire actual undergrad, where I got the actual degree and everything. And so that mm -hmm. was sort of for me, you know, it was it, the Benny Lewis kind of just showed me, you know, that this was a thing that people could do. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more details that go into being able to actually do it. But I think sometimes just seeing someone do something like that, you know, it just starts those gears turning. I feel like for a lot of us, we, you know, if no one's ever done something before, there is a kind of sense of like wanting permission, I guess, like that you need to, you, you need, oh, okay, are you allowed to do that? Can you do that? And so for <laughs> me, seeing Benny Lewis was really one of those like, oh, you know, you could try to do something like this. And and I mean, obviously, there's a lot more thought that went into making that, that challenge um, possible and, and even successful. But I think that that's what I'm kind of hoping to do with this book is to show people that, you know, you don't need permission, you can do things like this, you you know, maybe it's, not learning a language or learning computer science for you, maybe it's learning painting or maybe it's learning entrepreneurship or maybe it's learning some other skill that you think, you know, you'd like to get really good at. Um, and this is just sort of trying to expand your mind to what might be possible. Lovely. I think generally the topic of learning to code and learning um, computer science is definitely a way that would bring value to the audience in case we have the chance to go a little more into the process and yeah, the idea of, of how we could start. Maybe not generally computer science, but if people are in the process of building a startup, which a lot of people in the community are, mm -hmm. um, you come across, of course, or as a business founder, you kind of like want to understand product and tech more and more. And of course, there are certain resources that help you get a general understanding of it. But I feel that also a lot of business owners, and I feel the same, I would love to to start coding in a little more depth to also go into more in-depth conversations with my co-founders. And I, I know that the audience also feels the same in that regard. And I would love to maybe get a hold of, let's say, we want to learn Node.js or we want to learn Python. Yeah. Um, of course, there are certain Udemy courses that you can watch, but if you want to grab a little more from the iBirds perspective and to like start ultra learning a certain language, how would you approach it? What would be like a step-by-step, -step, more or less roadblock to, or a step-by-step -step road to come to, to the final end? 
Yeah, so, well, let's take Python as an example, because I think uh, Python is a pretty versatile language. I think Python is a pretty good starting language for a lot of people. Um, I think, for yeah. instance, I think it's a lot easier to start learning Python than JavaScript. Uh, even though JavaScript is a little yeah, bit more okay. useful for some web applications, if you've never done any programming before, I think Python is a little bit more friendly to use. But I would say mm -hmm. that um, the the right decision to make is not so much okay. Well, what you know? Okay, which book or which course should I use? Because the truth is, is that if you take any programming course or any programming book, they mostly teach it in the same way. So they mostly will say, okay, here's you know, we're gonna print hello world, and then. These are what variables are, and then this is what a function is, and then <laughs> this is, is so basically true. <laughs> how this is basically how all programming classes proceed. So I would say the right way to think about it is not that like you you do kind of have to go through a certain sequence of learning it, and so there's a reason that people teach it in that order. So it's not to say, oh well, there's this some like tricky way that you can do it that will skip all of that work. Like obviously you have to go through that work. Um, but I would say at the, so there's two ways I would give advice. So one would be at the kind of macro level or again, sort of what, what is the overall project that you're trying to do to learn programming. And then the second would be at the micro level, what are the specific tactics you're using to get better at programming? And so one of the things that I would talk about at the macro level is just having a concrete project that you want to work on. So one of the things that I think holds people back with programming is that there's a sort of vague sense of, well, I don't really know what I want to make. And so you're mm -hmm. learning things, you're going through the course, but it's not tied down to any real direct purpose. And this has two problems. The first problem is that when you don't have a direct application for what you're using, that often zaps some of the motivation to learn. Uh, if you are just learning a language, but you have no plan to travel there, you have no plan to ever speak to someone in that language, it does kind of feel like an academic exercise. It feels like something abstract that like, okay, yeah, maybe I'll use this at some point, but. I don't know when. So that would be the first reason. So whatever it is, it could be I want to make a game. It could be I want to make like a script to automate something in my business. It could be that, you know, I want to make a little like helper program, whatever it is. I generally recommend picking something very simple and easy to start. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to know which programs are easy and which programs are difficult. But I would say that, um, you know, obviously, I'm gonna build. Uh, I'm gonna build the next Facebook is not like an easy project to start with. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> I'm gonna make this script that'll like go through my accounting files and like pick out, you know, like that's something that you could actually manageably, um, you know, chew off. And so I usually start with uh, small projects. And sometimes if your first project's a little bit too big, you have to do kind of like a toy version of that project to move forward. But I think keeping that in mind is very useful, not only because it increases your motivation to actually learn and go through all of those lessons about variables and functions and whatnot, but then also because one of the things that we know from uh, just pretty much over a century of psychological research is that people are not as good at transfer as we would expect them to be. The transfer is basically when you take something you've learned in one context, let's say from a book or from a classroom, and then apply it in a new context. And it seems that people struggle with this. I think it's they probably struggle a little less with explicitly practical subjects like learning to code. But still, if you are doing a programming set of exercises in a book and it's telling you exactly what to do and you follow and you copy the exercises exactly, and then you have to do your own project, that can still feel a little bit scary. So I, I recommend starting a, a small version of your own project to begin with. And then it also works on those skills of how do you 
how do you turn this project into something that you can actually do? Because sometimes when people start, you know, they're following the lessons and so they can do exactly what they're told, but when they have to do their own project, it requires different thinking tools. And so I usually recommend starting with that uh, fairly soon Makes as sense. well. So like to, to define a first project that is more or less needed to also bring up the motivation. Um, I think like to, to, to go one step further, because I think uh, the project maybe is there. Let's say, let's assume that the project is there and people like want to take the next step. Of course, your book is going to help in the more in-depth um, conversation about it. But how like is a good first step like what's maybe i like to approach it differently what's a good first step that you need to think about when thinking about ultra learning when thinking about learning mm -hmm. to code maybe instead of taking like like taking three months for it maybe also learning to code within three four weeks how would an approach be to like minimize the time learning right so i think there's a few steps the first step i usually recommend is actually kind of ironically is not to get started immediately so what i usually recommend is to people to spend as much as five to 10% of the total time they expect to spend on their project. So if, as we said, if we had like a three week project, maybe you're spending, you know, maybe spending two or three days, just, um, just going through and looking at what are the different ways people can learn this skill? Because I think one of the mistakes that people often make is that they just run off with the first book they find or the first program they find and that might be helpful, but it might not be. And so if you even just Google around, what's the best way to learn Python? Not only are you gonna to encounter tons of books and resources, you're gonna have a much broader set of materials you can draw on, mm -hmm. but you'll also, you'll also learn kind of from people who've already learned that skill. What do they recommend for getting started? What do they recommend for using it? And maybe they have different advice depending on what your end goal is or where you're trying to learn it for. And so I think, uh, this step, which I call meta-learning, which is really just learning how to learn, I think is very important for any project. And it's often neglected. It's often something that people will, you know, oh, well, I'll just grab this or I'll just use this. And mm -hmm. the problem is that for a lot of skills, um, I mean, as I said, a lot of programming courses and books tend to teach in roughly the same way. So maybe it's not as extreme if you, you know, you already know you want to learn Python programming, for instance. But for a lot of people, you know, they don't know what programming language they want to learn. They don't know where they want to apply it exactly yet. So doing this research is helps for figuring that out. And then also for a lot of skills, like, like language learning is a perfect example. Um, a lot of the resources that are very popular don't work very well. And so you would discover <laughs> this if you were looking around that they don't actually have great reviews and people don't find that they actually work that well, even though they're quite popular for other reasons. And so, you can uh, avoid a lot of wasted time just by picking the right resources, just by picking the right starting point for your project. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that's uh, that's a super interesting approach because I think a lot of people just stump, just start jumping into the learning process as quick as possible. They find an online course and they immediately start doing because they have the urge to do it or they feel like it's the right moment to start learning and rather maybe take a step back and think about, okay, how can we maximize the research as to make it as effective as possible to then go into the actual learning process that's an interesting way of thinking about it from a different perspective how many like what's like the biggest mistake that you see people make when they think about learning something whether it's coding learning a language or whatever it is like what's the biggest mistake when people start to learn something so i think the biggest mistake is related to what i suggested earlier which is that they don't 
tie what they're trying to learn down to some concrete application early on. So again, using language learning as an example, why are you learning a language? Well, typically you're learning a language because you want to have conversations with people. I mean, that's the reason most people are trying to learn a language, whether it's when they're traveling and they're, you know, having simple back and forth with the taxi driver, or whether it's having, you know, hour long conversations about local politics or something. This is sort of the main motivation to learn most languages. I mean, there's a few exceptions where people, you know, they only want to watch movies or they only want to, you know, read old books or something. But for most people, that's the reason they want to do it. But if you look at how most people approach learning a language, when do they start having that conversation? Well, for some people, it's they never get to that point. They, they are spending months and months and months doing other things other than that learning. And so this suffers from this transfer problem that I talked about earlier. Um, but at the same time, it also creates, again, these difficulties of motivation. So if you're not actually using the skill, you're not seeing progress, it's harder to just work on learning when it's purely an academic idea that's purely is totally separated from everything that you care about so it's very hard mm -hmm. to maintain motivation but then also there's these transfer issues so that you spend a lot of time learning something and it may be the case that the way you're learning it doesn't transfer as well to the situation you actually care about so with programming again my my suggestion for that particular domain is come up with some kind of programming project and it can be pretty small to start. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It doesn't, even if your eventual goal is to build some great startup, maybe your first goal is like, well, could I make like a website? Or like, could I make a website that, you know, allows for this? Or, you know, just to get started, right? Like you can work on those things. So it, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be the full situation, just in the same way that if you start trying to have a conversation with someone, it doesn't have to be an hour long tirade. It can be, you know, just a simple back and forth, even if you're using a dictionary in Google Translate. But I think that's an important step and it's often missing from a lot of the ways we think about learning academically where you spend, you know, the whole time learning that's completely removed from the situation where you're going to apply it. And so I think this this sort of experience we have in school often misleads us to thinking that that is the right way to approach it when really that's sort of a deficit of school, not in its advantage. From from a from a timing perspective because i think that's also um part of of the learning process and of course if you have a project that you can actively work on that's more or less also um your full-time job more or less to build a startup and you kind of need to build your first website that's uh having some animations or whatever i think that's the first step but if, if people want to like learn something on the side besides uh, they have like a main job happening or besides they're actually working in a startup and they kind of want to learn something on the side how would you recommend, like, what would you recommend to those people who more or less try to ultra learn on the side? Should they block uh, certain hours during the day? What's your, what's your experience to like keep the learning process in a in a certain mood, but also not forget um, to to keep learning day by day and to keep doing it regularly? So in many ways, the people who are learning with, you know, you only have 20 minutes a day or you only have half an hour a day in order to learn this particular subject. Those are the people that really need these kinds of efficient learning approaches because you don't have any time to waste, right? If you're a student at school and you have your entire day, your entire week to focus on learning, well, okay, maybe if you wasted an hour or two doing something that didn't matter, who cares? But if you're only doing 20 minutes a day and you waste two hours, well, that's a week gone. And that could make mm -hmm. a really big difference in your long-term progress. 
So what I try to talk about in the book, and, and I think is an important thing to keep in mind, even when I am talking about people like Benny Lewis or, or things like the MIT Challenge, where they were kind of intensive full-time projects, that the real essence of this is what are you doing with each minute you spend studying? How does each minute make you better at the skill, acquire knowledge, retain things better? That's really the level that I like to focus on. In the, in the broad scheme of things, whether you do something you know, like you go to a coding boot camp and you do 60 hours a week and you do it for, you know, two, three weeks, or whether you are, you know, spending again, like 20 minutes a day over a year, that's really up to you and your schedule. I think that there are some things that are a little bit easier to do in a burst, uh, like for instance, uh, language learning where you're traveling and actually immersing yourself in another country or culture tends to be a little bit better when you have the ability to chunk off time for it. It's harder to do that on 20 minutes a day. But on the right. other hand, there's a lot of skills that um, actually benefit from being more spread out. There's a robust, there's a robust amount of um, literature from the uh, from psychology showing that spacing, that if you actually spread out the exposures that you have to information, you retain it for longer. So it, it isn't to say that you have to be doing it. Sorry to interrupt, but to make it work. Spacing means like more or less also do it in weekly terms, or does that mean take a break for one to two days, or? Um, what can people I think, like, think of? Yeah, so I think the idea behind spacing uh, or the right way to think about it is that so if you have, um, if you just keep exposing yourself to the same information in the same studying session just again and again and again, uh, it tends to be have quickly diminishing returns about how effective that is in terms of your overall ability to remember it. In contrast, if you have some material and you remind yourself of it over several different occasions, not for very long, but over several different occasions spread out in time. Those could be on different days, it could be a different studying sessions, different areas where you want to learn, then you will have a longer set of memories about it. And so this, this means that if you are taking a class, for instance, uh, the way that most people learn is that they do unit one, and then they do unit two, and then they do unit three, da da da, -da up mm -hmm. to the end, and then they do a big cram right before the exam. And research shows this isn't very effective, that what you should have been doing is you do unit one and then you do unit two and then you do a little bit to remind yourself of unit one and then you do unit three and then you do a little bit to remind yourself of unit two and then unit one and, and you do a little bit of those reminder things and then if you do it properly, you don't have to really cram before the exam. You should only have to do just a light refresher at the end of the course. And that way of learning might take the same amount of total hours of studying time but the end result is that you will remember that information far longer than the kind of massed exposure to the information where you just do one concentrated burst and then you move on to the next topic and you don't review it. Amazing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that's uh, that's definitely good to also take it away from like the ultra learning principle, how to be more effective in that sense, especially if you have less time. Um, maybe if, mm -hmm. like a final question before we go into the, the Q&A part. Um, like when we think a little bit more on the visionary side, when we think, I think a lot of people in the community saw that Elon Musk was recently presenting um, the Neuralink as a way of more or less having mm -hmm. to like having an enabler to reach any information possible within milliseconds. Uh, and of course, that's going to happen sooner or later if we think about uh, how the world is changing in a bit. But what do you think like about like the learning principle in general? If you think a little bit more visionary on the side that Neuralink and other elements will come into play and will more or less also be part of the brain, how do you think uh, learning will change in that sense? 
Well, so I think it's interesting. I think, first of all, it's kind of difficult to talk about technology that doesn't exist yet in terms of what will be the trade-offs and what will be the, you know, the actual application of this. Um, I have seen a little bit about that. So I, again, it doesn't exist right now. So it's hard for me to comment on how effective it will be. But if we right. think about it, though, the idea of using external technology to expand our minds and our ability to think and remember really as has been going on for the last couple thousand years if we think about writing writing was an invention that essentially extended our minds it extended our memories into a physical media that was outside of our brains even um, a lot of cognitive science researchers now talk about uh, kind of extended cognition or, or this idea that a lot of what is going on in our minds is not merely what's happening in our brain, but also what's happening in our bodies or in the objects that we manipulate in order to represent and store information. So, you know, uh, like even with your counting and you're using your fingers, this is a sort of an extended cognition idea because the number you know, when you're a child and you have to count on your fingers, the number isn't necessarily being purely stored inside of your head, but being stored also in the physical position of your fingers, which is counting. And I mean, that's a mm -hmm. very simple idea, but even little things like putting a post-it to remind yourself to get the groceries when you leave the house on the, on the front door, that's a little bit of a kind of, okay, well, I'm setting up almost an external memory that will trigger at the moment that I need it. And so technology in terms of our smartphones, in terms of our note-taking systems in terms of all these things really aid and augment our ability. So I see the Neuralink or, or these kinds of more extreme forms of technology as being an extrapolation of what we've already been doing for the last thousand years or so. And so I think on the one hand, these kind of technologies hold great promise, but on the other hand, I think they even, they, they even underscore the importance of learning things well, because I don't think it's the case that if you go back to, you know, ancient Greek times when there weren't these devices, people would say, oh, well, you have to, you had to learn a lot more in the ancient Greek days than you do now because <laughs> you had to memorize everything and there was no paper and everyone had to just memorize speeches. Well, no, obviously we wrote things down, but then that created an opportunity for a deeper, almost harder kind of learning because you have to understand what was really meant by something instead of just memorizing it verbatim. And so this is sort of, I think, the progression of the education system over the last hundred or so years is that, you know, now the idea that we would be teaching a lot of rote memorization for facts and trivia seems kind of antiquated because if you want to find out the date of any historical event, you can just Google it. It's very easy, right? And so right. what we really want people to do is really understand why did this event happen and what was the sort of story behind it. And similarly with skills, you know, this is, this is one of the things that I talk about in my book is that what has been happening is that the things that were kind of easier to learn, the things that you could just do a little bit of training and then do this sort of clerical job, those have been replaced by computers. Travel agents, librarians, uh, bookkeepers, these are all professions that are increasingly becoming automated and dwindling as a result. And the mm -hmm. jobs that are replacing them are more complicated. They require higher skills. They require deeper thinking and deeper learning. So I, I don't see Neuralink as being a break from that tradition. I think it just continues it. And I think that the technology that happens in the future, whether it is some kind of implant or whether it's you know, they've, they've even done things now with fMRI and like scanning mm -hmm. people's brains to like form low resolution images of the things they're mentally picturing and stuff like that. Right, and so right. 
all of these things that when they happen, I think that they're going to just underscore the need to really understand how learning works and to have, you know, sophisticated strategies rather than, you know, well, I'm just going to memorize this and just hope that, you know, <laughs> that's going to be enough. Right. I mean, it's it's also part of maybe just a changing interface where people will not look into a smartphone or use voice as a tool to access mm -hmm. information, but they will just use more or less an external element in their brain to to access learning possibilities, right? I mean, it can also be just another interface that's been developing. So I think that's an interesting thought uh, that we can potentially expand further, but I would love to go into the Q&A to also sure. learn a little bit more about your personal preferences. Um, what's the most favorite book that you have read that you also maybe gifted to people and that you've loved reading that you want to share with the audience? So a book that I've been recommending a lot recently is the book uh, The Enigma of Reason by uh, Dan Spurvey and Hugo Mercier. And so I recommend this book because most people have never heard of it and because when I read it, it was like a really mind-blowing book for me. So it is mm -hmm. on a fairly like this is a this is a fairly deep topic. It's not an easy book. It is written for a sort of general audience, but it's on kind of a deep idea. And the basic idea of the book is so what the enigma of reason is, according to the, the authors, is simply that, first of all, um, why do you know, when we think about reason or, or thinking through things logically and coming to conclusions and, you know, reason, what we really think of is the this sort of fundamental human ability. Uh, why do humans seem to be the only animals that have this ability? So that's kind of surprising if we think about, you know, just life in terms of evolution and stuff, why human beings would be the only animals to have this. And then also, mm -hmm. if it's, uh, you know, we, we all also have heard just so much in the last, like, couple decades about how flawed our reasoning is, that how we, you know, we're biased and we make all these bad arguments and we think badly about things and we're so irrational. And so it's sort of doubly funny that if, you know, reason is so powerful, not only, you know, why are we the only ones to have it, but why does it seem to not work so well? Like, why, why do we seem to make so many <laughs> reasoning errors all the time? And the authors mm -hmm. actually have a very compelling explanation, but it causes you, I think, in some ways to really rethink what it means to think deeply about things and what it means um, to understand things and what it means to, yeah, all of that. And that the idea that they have is that we've just fundamentally um, misconstrued what it is to really think about things. Lovely. Definitely put that in the show notes. I also haven't read it, so I think that's definitely a very interesting book, especially um, also I think for entrepreneurs who definitely who like kind of want to solve problems. Uh, the Enigma of Reason definitely sounds like a book that could potentially fit in that space. Um, from a routine perspective, is there any routines that you do on a daily basis or uh, on a weekly basis that help you uh, stay who you are? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a. I have a number of habits that I do regularly. Um, one of the habits I do just for physical fitness is I just do I do 50 push-ups every day. It's a pretty lightweight habit, but I like it because I can do it wherever. So even if I'm in a hotel room in a different city, I can do it. Um, in terms of learning, I, I have learning goals that I I'm just sort of maintaining constantly. And so one of the things that I've been doing for the last couple of years is I just have a goal to do 10 minutes of uh, Chinese practice uh, a day. And that's been something I've been doing for a number of years. And it's mostly just to maintain engagement. In it. And so that's, you know, I think another learning advice uh, that I could give is that once you have learned something and now you're kind of at the point where you want to get better, but it's more a long haul thing than, than you know, quickly learning the basics of something. 
Uh, in that case, I think having a regular habit that like it could be once a day or once a week, you do some very minimal amount of practice um, is good because it just kind of gets the ball rolling and then you end up doing more practice sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you're fluent now in, in Chinese or? <laughs> I would say, yeah, I would say I'm pretty fluent. I, I'm, you know, it's hard. I don't know. I'm always skeptical to talk about fluency because for some people, the word fluent means uh, perfect or it means that like you speak it like your native language, which actually very, very few people are able to do that. Um, they're like and, and usually they tend to be people who have lived for uh, a long time in in the culture that that speaks that language. But even then, mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, by the standard of like, are you perfectly fluent would be. Um, you know, there's not that many, but at the same time, uh, I think that there, there is a kind of lighter definition where fluent is that you can kind of have a fluid conversation where there's not a lot of, um, you know, that's really what fluency means is it doesn't mean perfection. Fluency means that you're not stammering or, or thinking while well, you have to look up words, you're, you're just talking. Right. And so right, by right. that benchmark, I would say I'm, I'm fluent in Chinese, although, you know, clearly there's still a lot of things to learn, which is why I'm still practicing. <laughs> how do you like manage your to-dos of course you have the different stuff that you need to do you're, you're like very deep into yeah. writing you have your whole book story coming up or, or it's out already uh, but but there's a lot of stuff to do like how do you how do you keep your to-dos together yeah so it's a mixed system i i, I basically i do um i will have a calendar to manage things and i often schedule uh what i'm doing in the hours on that calendar this is especially true these days because since the books come out i've had a lot more Uh, podcast interviews right and so those tend to like make my schedule it's like okay I got this at like 10 a.m. and then I got this at like 2 p.m. and so I got to like work around that schedule and so I tend to chunk out and actually write in my calendar what I'm going to do in those in-between moments so that I don't waste them um, mm -hmm. but at the same time one of this uh, productivity approaches that I've used for a number of years now that I find it's pretty lightweight it's pretty simple but it works pretty well is what I call weekly daily goals Or just every night you make a daily to-do list and every week you make a weekly to-do list and your daily to-do list is sort of siphoned off of the weekly list plus maybe some, you know, daily tasks like going to the gym and stuff. And uh, the thing I find really valuable about that is that it takes the kind of infinitude of things that you have to do and chunks it down to, okay, but today I'm just doing this. And I think that that's very helpful because often if you are in this sort of zoomed out mindset where you're like, oh my God, I've got so many things to do. There's an infinite list of things and it feels overwhelming. It can mm -hmm. feel like all your efforts are for naught just because you were putting in a lot of work, but you're barely chipping away at it. And so you need to reframe that psychologically so that you're just focused on what's in front of you right now. And I think that's the key to making progress is that you've chunked it down enough so that all right, well, I'm just doing this right now. And then you make progress on that and then you do the next thing. Lovely. Yeah, I can totally agree to, to that. I, I do the same with the weekly and daily goals. Of course, also inspired by Nier's uh, new book, um, which is all about um, all about the productivity side of doing things. Um, mm -hmm. Very cool answer. Thank you. Um, what would be a guest that you would love to listen to if you think about the podcast here? <laughs> oh, a guest that I'd love to listen to. Um, well, lots of people. I have lots of friends that have, uh, you know, done interesting things and interesting books. People, well, you, we just mentioned Nir Eyal, but, you know, James Clear, Cal Newport. These are all very interesting speakers. I always enjoy my conversations with them.
Lovely. Cool. Good to hear that. Uh, Cal Newport is definitely on my list, so I, I try to approach him. So let's try. <laughs> yeah. Um, nice. Um, thank you for the conversation. Maybe you can um, tell a little bit more, like, where can people find your book? Um, also, where can people actually follow your journey um, sure. of ultra learning and everything you do? Maybe you can give a little hint here. Yeah, so uh, you can go to my website, which is at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And uh, there uh, you not only have links to the book, uh, which is now available Amazon, Barnes Noble, Audible, Ultra Learning, but you can also um, read my articles. I've written over a thousand articles on productivity and learning and goal setting and things that might be useful to the people listening here today. Lovely. We'll put that all in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Scott. I'm great, quite uh, grateful that you've had the time and we chat a little bit about your journey of ultra learning and especially for the audience of entrepreneurship. I think there was a lot of value in there. So uh, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you.